Welcome to you all, and especially to those that are hungry and thirsty for reality. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia, with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, that are seeking ultimate meaning and destiny in their lives. I want to refer you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com where there is a flipbook with very original understanding and writing by the gifting of the Spirit of God through me for you to read. And you will discover there is a lot of print that is highlighted in red. That's actually links to YouTube videos that are very profound and amazing, showing from many fields of science and archaeology the reality of what I am sharing here. This is not just some religion to believe in. This is reality and the very reason and purpose and meaning for all that exists and consists for your life. So check that out. You'll find there's uh, quite a few videos now on the front page. I've recently upgraded the website. I still have some pages to upgrade, but most of the links are now working with a lot of really good video galleries. Um, so, ultimatemeaning.com. Including, I have worship songs up there now, and my book that I've written on the afterlife, titled Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable, which you can purchase on Amazon, as well as a few other books I have. For those that are new, this message is especially for those that have come to know the one true God, for whom to know is life eternal. And I want to just briefly explain who the one true eternal God could only possibly be. Yes, the name in the Old Testament in the Bible in the Hebrews Yahweh in the English, it's usually translated Lord, or some people like to pronounce it Jehovah, but more accurately, Yahweh. And it basically means the I am that I am, that ultimate reality, separate above and beyond creation. And Abraham, in Genesis 18, has three angels before his tent door that he sees standing there, and he probably perceived right away they were far more majestic to be all, only ordinary human beings. And he tells them basically that he wants to make a meal for them and he goes ahead and has his servants prepare a meal and they all eat together and he addresses one of those, the leader, as Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for God, the one true eternal God right there in Genesis. Yes, the Creator is great enough to communicate with His creation. In fact, He can communicate with the, everything that is emanating and is in creation, is in some measure receiving some form of communication that is originated from the Creator. So it's a very limited concept to think that God is so great that he couldn't come down in human form and com communicate with his creation. No, God is so great that he can do that as he did in Genesis 18. And what I want to share with you here is that the source of reality is an ultimate perfection and manifestation of love. It is the very source of love as well. But I am describing a love that is far more than the typical concept that people have of love. This love is a quality that always freely chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. Because any lesser choice as such would have a measure of corruption in it. This love is the very opposite of corruption. In fact, it is the destroyer of corruption. This love 
is so pure in its integrity that as it were it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to this love. Yes, God created us as free-willed beings so that we would have the capacity to love. In other words, he created us as the source of our own action, not like a robot that has all of its information from an outside source that is not the creator. He created us with a purpose as well that we would come into harmony with this love. But however, when you create a being with its own free will, there is a potential to make choices that go against this ultimate reality, resulting in a hell-contagious state of being, a destructive, cancerous state of being, an anti-life state of being that is worse than nothingness, and that will result in an ultimate destiny of torment which would be worse than nothing. God's purpose is that we should come and be restored back into harmony with this love. But the first aspect of this love will not tolerate what is contrary to love. That is the holiness of God or the defensive aspect of the love of God or the holiness of this love, if you will. It is represented in the negative symbol in math, electricity, and all of nature basically representing cutting off all that is corrupt and representing an indestructible foundation from which can spring forth creativity without corruption, which is our ultimate destiny, heaven, where there is no corruption. So the first aspect of this love is seen in the negative symbol. And from the negative symbol is formed the positive symbol, which is the crossing out of the negative symbol. It is the symbol of the cross, and the symbol of the cross was the last letter of the ancient alph alphabet of the most ancient languages going back to 1500-2000 BC, and basically meant sign or symbol. And this positive symbol represents that God's love is so great that he could take judgment upon himself for the creation, for free-willed beings such as ourselves. who are living in this physical dimension. Oh, some people wonder, well, what about the angels? No, the angels were created directly in the presence of God's love, of a flowing river of blessing and life, and to go directly against that, there is no pardon. But we are via, our rebellions happen via the physical dimension via being tempted through our physical bodies to disobey God. And so I want to explain, especially in what I will be sharing today, more about this in great depth, because today is Good Friday. And this week was the week of Passover as well. And so I'm going to be giving a special message on that. But first of all, so I'm, I'm sharing this with those that are new because I want to point this out. That there is no love that can be imagined that is greater than this love. That God would come down and condescend to his creation and become a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice to humble himself more than you, a mere creature. You think of that. And to suffer more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be free to choose to repent and be cleansed of all your sin, forgiven of all your sin, and reconciled to the one true eternal God. And I will also add this, that for God to be indeed Almighty God, he must also be in three personages in order to rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond creation, in creation, and filling all creation. As God the Father, he is beyond the time and space realm, beyond the creation realm, seeing the end from the beginning. The Son is the full expression of the being, the perfect, and the only one and full expression of the perfect being of the one true God into the creation realm. That is who was communicating with Abraham, as I mentioned in Genesis 18. 
So the son rules in personage in the creation realm. The father rules in personage beyond it, above and beyond it. And the Holy Spirit in omnipresence fills all creation with his presence. And if you were not in personage in those three ultimate aspects and conscious intelligence in those three ultimate aspects, you wouldn't be ruling it and therefore you wouldn't be almighty. So I want to share that. And there's a lot more one can share on the wonders of the triunity of the one true God. For whom to know is life eternal? So I want to share with those that are new also that the way I give these messages is by casting lot before God to get the possibility of any chapter from the Bible with two independent random applications. Thus, I get two chapters that would bear witness with each other as to the message that God would say to those of his people, that is, that are in assemblies across the world, like here in Canada. Especially this message is for the churches throughout Canada and the churches throughout the United States, but around the world. In an hour of such obvious crisis that we are in at this time, today being April the 7th of 2023. So I want to share those two chapters I received by the casting of Lot, and I only spent a half an hour meditating on them, and then I share in this case, almost immediately after. And also, I pick a song. This time, I just pick one that would be appropriate because I'm very fussy. I, I don't, I believe in having the very best worship songs in my messages. And so today, I should point out to you that at ultimatemeaning.com now, I also have the worship songs as well as on loverealize.com where I have all my video messages and there's now 144 of them up there and there's a few I don't care for that much but most of them are exceptional songs and um, so today we're just going to be share, singing the one that is appropriate with the message and so we'll do that first before I get into the message so we'll do that now I'm just going to go to that song So we'll just start this first of all by um, bringing this up and I'll minimize myself um, as well. So here we go. And we'll just see. Washed. 
That's a, such an uplifting song, really, isn't it? And uh, so, yes, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And uh, I just want to double check, make sure everything's working fine, and it is okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to now go to the passages that I received today by the casting of lots before the Lord because it does apply to what is known as Good Friday and we'll just begin by um, reading these two passages that I received but I want to point out first of all briefly what they're about Genesis 32 is about Jacob when he was facing a great trial because he was about to face Esau, his brother, with 400 men that, for all he knew, were going to kill him and all of his wives and children. And so that was a great trial for him. And in Psalms 23, many of us are familiar with that psalm, and it says there, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And so the obvious theme here is about how God reveals himself to us in the time of the greatest crucible of pressure, of trial, of suffering, of possibilities of what would possibly look like our soon coming demise. And so I want to bring out here what is in these two passages and we will see how these things all fit together. So many of us are familiar with this account and historical account in Genesis 32, but I do want to read it. I'm not reading from the beginning of the chapter. I will give the context for those that are new. Is that Jacob had worked with with a with Laban. He had fled his own land because he, Esau was wanting to kill him because he stole his birthright. And so his parents told him, "You gotta go. You gotta go. Flee to um, Assyria or whatever where where it was there." And so he. He went and he ran into Rachel, which was very beautiful and attractive, and discovered that she was related to his parents. And she invited him in, and Laban, the master, made a deal with him that if you work for me for seven years, I'll give you this beautiful lady as your wife. And uh, then he gave him the other lady that he didn't like as much, and so he says, well, you got to work another seven years to get uh, both of them. So 14 years in total. And then at the end of that time, God so prospered him that he did not want to stay with Laban anymore. And he wanted to take what was his rightful portion because Laban did make deals with him to have a certain amount of his own sheep and cattle, etc. And of course, he knew a way. I won't go into the details of all that. And so here we are, he's fled from Laban. And now he's about, of course, Laban caught up with him and they 
had quite a confrontation, but ended up making a covenant of peace. But now he's going to face Esau that was determined and vowed to kill him when he fled years ago. And he's coming with 400 men. And here we begin to read. And when he saw that he prevailed not against... Okay, this is a little bit sooner than later than I thought. So I will turn to the passage itself, which hopefully I can get to relatively quickly in this... Um, particular software program. So I'm going to go back to Genesis 32. Didn't realize I had had it so soon there. Here we are in Genesis 32. And I want to start a little bit. I believe it's Genesis 32, is it? Yeah, 32. Okay. So, um, we'll begin reading I guess starting at verse 11 where he's really concerned about what's going to happen to his wives and children and all of those flocks as he's heading towards wanting to be back with Isaac and Rebekah's parents and runs into Esau with 400 men. And Jacob prays, Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And he lodged there the same night and took of that which came to his hand, a present for Esau's brother, 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their coats, 40 kin, 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 foals. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants every drove by themselves and said unto his servants, pass over before me and put a space betwixt drove and drove and he commanded the foremost saying when Esau my brother meeteth thee and asketh thee saying who art thou and whither goest thou and whose are these before thee then thou shalt say they be thy servant Jacob's it is a present set unto my lord Esau and behold also he is behind us and so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the drove saying on this matter shall ye speak. So this is how he's seeking to bring appeasement to Esau as he knows he's about to face him. And then I want to skip to here in verse 25. And when he saw that he... So now he's left alone. All of them have gone and he's by himself. And a man comes and begins to wrestle with Esau. And so they're wrestling for most of the night. It's a strange thing that he, he's experiencing here. And when he saw that he prevailed not, this is the angel that wrestled with Esau. It was an angel that wrestled with him. Or a spiritual, it was actually Jesus Christ in the flesh, okay? Actually, that's who it was. That becomes evident as you read this. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow, this is Jesus, they're wrestling with Jacob. He touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, that's uh, Yahweh, which is also Jesus in the flesh, Yahweh in the flesh. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, and Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. So he, he already had met a company of angels just a little bit earlier. And he said, this is indeed the company of God. So he no doubt knew that who he was wrestling with was an angel. And he's saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
He wanted to be blessed by God, and he was desperate enough to be blessed by God that he stole Esau's inheritance, which wasn't what to do, of course. That was deceptive. The word Jacob means he will take by the heel or deceiver, and he did this. But the name Jacob has changed, of course, in this passage to Israel. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? So Jacob is asking, what's your name? Or no, no, the, actually Jesus is asking, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, thou as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. He prevailed. He was determined not to let this angel go. So that was why they were wrestling until he was blessed. And here they're wrestling much of the night. That was his desperation to be blessed by God. He's wrestling. And his name is changed from Jacob, deceiver to Israel, which means he shall be a prince of God. A prince with God. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee, thy name. So he's asking, who is this I'm wrestling with? You must have a name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou ask after my name? He didn't want to tell him, but we know who it was. It could only have been the Yahweh that appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18. It could only have been the one that could only be a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice for sin, and that is God himself manifest in communicating in, in human form as he does in God the Son. Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, okay. And he said, wherefore is it that thou ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. He knew that this wasn't just an angel, that he had seen God face to face, brothers and sisters. Take that into your heart. Often God will reveal himself in the times of great crisis in a very intimate face-to-face -face way with us where we will have a powerful revelation of God if in the trial we do not let go of God and we believe that his ultimate purpose in allowing the trial, allowing the pressure is to ultimately bless us. And so we wrestle through the trial, which we, when it's so easy to let go, to let go and give up and lose the blessing of God. But Jacob prevailed. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, yes, because he saw God face to face. And he passed over Peniel, when he, and as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. And of course, I, I don't need to go into all of that. Now, the other passage we received was Psalm 23, where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with. Jacob found his refuge in God in this time of great trial. And the Lord came through. Brothers and sisters, I want to share with you my testimony. In 1975, I had the one open vision that I've only had in my life. That's a long time ago when I was in my, probably my mid-20s or even towards maybe my later 20s. I don't remember exactly. There was two pressures in my trial that came to a head. I was feeling very condemned. I was feeling so condemned by Satan and by my own heart. And I want to remind those 
that know God, that the word of God says that if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. But there is this tendency in us where we condemn ourselves and then the enemy can come and augment that condemnation in a far greater way because he has a foothold in our own tendencies to condemn ourselves. Sometimes when we're in a trial, we can feel very condemned because our failures are being exposed. As it says in the word of God, that the trying of our faith in Peter, it says, is like gold that is being smelted. It brings the dross to the surface. And when we see the dross, the enemy says, see, you're the dross. That's who you are. You're the dross. And so we begin to believe we're the dross and we put our identity in that and the enemy then has power over because he's the accuser of the brethren. How do they overcome? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and by not loving their lives unto the death. God is saying by his spirit that he wants us to be those that are all overcomers. We should settle for nothing less than victory in our lives. We should never have an attitude of giving up. Or of just saying, no, I don't want to seek God. I want to take it easy and, and get all kinds of wealth like the rich man. That, and then, what does it say? This night, thy soul shall be required of thee. And then what will that all mean? You could end up in hell if that's all you lived for and you didn't live for God. But Jacob had a vision. He wasn't there wanting to flee from Laban. He could have stayed with Laban and had more and more wealth, but he was willing to pay the price to do what he knew was God's plan for his life. And in this vision that I, and this open vision that I had, there was a couple that I was very close to, Gene and Ed, and there was another man there by the name of Dennis. I could give their last names. So why did, I don't think on a, video, that would be good. And it happened at one in the morning. And I was feeling very, very condemned because I was struggling with lust as a young man. And the lady that I was staying with, they wanted me to stay in their home, was so beautiful. And she was always wanting to talk to me instead of her husband. And that was very much concerning me. So I was wanting to try to find someone so I wouldn't get, could get out of this situation because she was exceptionally attractive and beautiful to me. And I can't go into all the other um, information on the video here, but to say that the other pressure there was was a great hunger and thirst for God. And those two pressures came to a climax, and I'm not going to go and tell the details of the vision for time, but it was a very dramatic vision, and what happened is even before this, I'd been praying for some time, Lord, I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I've experienced the outflow of your spirit and the speaking forth in new languages by the Spirit of God in tongues. But I haven't received the revelation that you promise in your word that if we keep your commandments, you will reveal the Son to us. And so I'd been praying that. And Jean, a very godly woman that even went on a fast for 40 days and won many people to the Lord and that was very attractive to me and really loved to have fellowship with me a lot. She, um, she said to me um, that God had shown her I would have a vision in a few weeks and I did that night unexpectedly. And I, I will say that I saw time go really fast. I saw her face fill with wrinkles, and then there was another face, and it wasn't her face, it was the face of Christ. It was the stare of a captain that was very stern, like he meant business, and this was war, and that I was to be part of his army. And, but his eyes were filled with love. That's what was in that vision. And I experienced myself going up in rapture before God, being burned at the stake as a martyr, 
and yet I was still happy I was being burned at the stake as a martyr. It was so rapturous. He touched me on my head and said, you're complete on him. You're complete in me. And then he then he said, your bone and my bone and flesh of my flesh. And when I looked at my hands, it was like I was looking at the hands of Christ. And yet I knew that it wasn't that I was Christ. I knew it was that he was in me and that I was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And it set me free from condemnation. You know, that happened to Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah. He was condemned by Satan. His clothes were filthy garments and the enemy is saying that's who you are and he was standing there accusing him and the lord comes along and takes off his filthy garments and puts on him garments of righteousness that are pure and a crown on his head and yet he continued to pray that high priest even though he was being condemned by the enemy and you can be sure that jacob was feeling condemned that he had done those things to Esau and that he deserved to be judged by Esau. He deserved to receive that kind of judgment and that the enemy was condemning him, but he wasn't going to let go. He was going to cry out to God for mercy and he was wanting the blessing of God to replace what he probably believed was a curse in his life because of deceiving his brother Esau and stealing his birthright. Brothers and sisters, I want to go on and, and apply this to um, what is today the day of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that we remember. And it's what was also the week of Passover. And I want to point out, first of all, though, before I go into that, a passage in Scripture, different passages that apply here. Israel is going to be facing in the future a time like what Jacob went through, and it's described in Jeremiah 35 to 7. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whither a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. That time is soon approaching, brothers and sisters, when, when every nation is going to come against Israel. I have in my book that I've written on the afterlife the account of a young Jewish lad that died and experienced seeing this time and experienced seeing the Mount of Olives split in half, though he wasn't an Orthodox Jew and didn't know that that was in the Scripture. And seeing the two prophets just before this happened ascend up into heaven from one side of the Mount of Olives and the other one from the other side. And seeing that it was only two days and Israel was defeated by the enormous amount of armies that came against her with swarms of drones and missiles and very sophisticated stuff and they were taking them and torturing them three days, taking them into captivity. But those that were in the area of Jerusalem, they couldn't, they somehow couldn't touch them. And then the Lord comes and ascends there and he can smell, he, the Jewish boy said, he could smell who really feared God and who didn't. And the ones that didn't fear God were immediately destroyed. And of course, there's this massive earthquake that in two minutes totally devastates the whole world. Every high tower falls, which is described in many places in the word of God. But there's coming this time, and in this time of Jacob's trouble, what do we read in Zechariah? Will happen. And it shall come to pass, Zechariah 12, 9 to 10. In that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me 
whom they have pierced. Me is referring to Yahweh. That's the name for Yahweh. The context is obviously clear. They shall look on Yahweh whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Brothers, I, I don't know. I, I, I just feel such a, a joy in my heart. It comes out in tears. Uh, that's just the way it is with me. And so I want to bring this now to the fact that God wants in these last days when we will begin to all find ourselves in places of great trouble like Jacob to know that we are prepared to cleave unto the Lord and to go through that trial. It says in Daniel, Blessed is he that remaineth unto so many days when just This is just a short time before the Lord returns and comes on the Mount of Olives. Because if you endure to that time, the Lord will come on the Mount of Olives. And yeah, you might not be in Jerusalem, as this Jewish lad said in the video interview. He saw that what was happening in Jerusalem was also happening wherever there was communities of truly genuine people that fear God, as he described it. That the Buildings did not fall around them. That they were totally preserved and protected. And of course it describes in Isaiah 24 that they will praise God in the midst of the fires. In fact, I do have a passage that is very close to that in here that I'm going to be reading from Isaiah 26 in relation to all these things. Here is another passage that is describing this in Isaiah 26. And maybe just, I will bring up that one little verse that is in Isaiah 24 to quickly point out to some of you as well. From Isaiah, I'm just going to go to Isaiah quickly here. In the word of God. I don't plan these things, so, you know, things are not always set out exactly the way they were to be set out. So here we're going to Isaiah 24, just to point out this one verse in Isaiah 24. And so here we are here, which it won't take long for me to find. And we see this here. <clears throat> when thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea, Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. And I won't go on to describe it, but it's describing people worshiping God in the midst of the fire. And here we want to go to Isaiah 26. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have wrought we have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So this is Israel feeling totally helpless because their military might is broken and they're about to be taken into captivity and many of them tortured. And they're feeling such a desperation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, as I read in Jeremiah 30. And then it says this, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise, awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. This is the second Passover. The first Passover happened in Egypt. 
This is the second Passover, when God's judgment passes over the whole world with his wrath upon the wicked. And we go on and we read, For behold, Yahweh cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. That time is soon coming. And those that know God will find refuge. They will be with other believers and the presence of God will be their habitation that will protect them. And as it were, they will find their hiding place under the wings of the presence of Almighty God. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. They are those that have applied the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts as they did in Egypt, except this is applied to your heart. The blood of the Lamb of God shed upon the cross. And so I want to point out something here in Leviticus 17 on the blood. It says in Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement or an atonement with God for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Now that word blood is the word for soul in the original. And when it says for the life, the word life there is the word Nefesh, which is also the word for soul. And so when you read further on in this verse where it says your souls, that is the same word, it's nefesh. And at the end there where it says atonement for the soul, the word soul there again is nefesh. And the soul is an understanding of you being who you really are to yourself. The reality of who you are in the essence of your being. That is the understanding of the word soul, as opposed to the word Shem, which is the word name, which is the reality of who you are expressed to others, your name expressed to others, your being, the quality of your being, of who your character, your, your uniqueness and character and being is to others. What I want to point out here is that there is a teaching that tends to not understand that when Christ shed his blood on the cross, as we are celebrating today, and his body was broken unto death, that is what brought about the power to cleanse us completely of sin. Animals could only cleanse the physical body. They could not cleanse sin out of the soul because they could not represent the soul. And of course, Christ was obedient, was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin, right up to the death of the cross. And as it were, he took the first man, Adam, and through his obedience, nailed him to death on the cross. But I want to give an understanding on the blood here more thoroughly. You know, they have discovered an amazing discovery in relation to what I want to define about the blood here. I guess I should first make it clear that the blood is a medium that allows the soul and what is in it to be in the blood in a certain way. In other words, this other dimension, the soul dimension, which is another dimension, far greater than the physical dimension, does have a way, through our choices which come from our soul, to affect the blood. So that if we obey, disobey God, there's genetic distortions that can happen so that the next generation has things that are damaging to them because God visits the iniquity of the children unto the third and fourth generation of them 
that hate him. Now, I don't have time to get into the difference between suffering for your own sins and why there is generational um, judgments as well. But I want to point out that with Christ, because his soul was obedient and because the blood of Christ did not come from a man but came from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that brooded over Mary, this was the blood of God. And this blood of God also was tempted and had the potential to disobey just like any human being. But because his soul was in perfect union and love with God and had a perfect quality, he always freely of his own will chose to resist that temptation without sin. And so his soul deposited in that blood something that was more than just perfect, but was a positive overflow of righteousness, if you will. The other thing is that the blood can, through the blood of Christ, because of what is in it of positive righteousness, in communication, so to speak, impact the soul in such a way as to totally cleanse the soul. Because our soul comes from the first Adam. Now, I want to just parallel this with something. You know, there's DNA in the blood and all the cells in our body. And there was an amazing discovery by Montagnier, who won the Nobel Prize, that totally blew away the theory of evolution. And this is just in the physical realm. He discovered that DNA, when he put it in a test tube in water, could communicate to DNA in another test tube in water. And even if it wasn't assembled right, could reassemble it. Then he discovered something even more amazing because all that man could do is try to put DNA together. He could never create life from non-life. But then he did a test tube where there was no DNA in it and put the DNA in the other test tube near that test tube. And the DNA sent a communication to the test tube that had nothing in it and created DNA. This totally blows away the theory of evolution. But it also shows a reality here about the blood of Christ. That there is communication even in the DNA like that that can create life all the more speaks to how the blood of Christ applied to our soul can communicate, not only communicate, but can totally cleanse the soul. He didn't have to go to hell. And it wasn't like some people falsely teach that Christ suffered in hell. There's no scriptures that say that he suffered in hell for our sins. It was the blood that he outpoured on the cross that cleanses our sins. When he left his body, he went with power and authority and preached to the spirits in prison and did not see corruption, according to the psalmist David. It says, Thou wilt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Now, in the Passover, what they do is they offer an innocent lamb, which was celebrated this week as well. And they keep that lamb for 14 days and it almost becomes a pet and so it's very difficult to kill it. You know, some people, they really love lambs as a pet and I could tell you an amazing story that happened to my mom, which was just so strange. I don't remember all the details at the moment. She's now in glory, but some lady, she was working at the Safeway and some lady wanted to give her a lamb as a pet because she didn't know what to do with it and so mom took it as a pet. And I forget the amazing story, but it was an amazing story how some people were looking for a lamb and happened to run into mom. And she says, well, I have this lamb that someone gave me and I don't know, you know, and, and here she ends up, with God, an amazing way, had this little lamb find a home. But anyhow, I'm talking about this lamb. And this lamb 
on that 14th day is killed. And that was the very time when Christ was being sacrificed on the cross, brothers and sisters. So we see that the blood of Christ is efficacious to cleanse our soul of sin so that we can be forgiven and can be saved and reconciled to God. Somehow, via the physical realm, yes, us human beings can know the forgiveness of God through the physical blood of Christ because of the soul of Christ that conquered corruption by a life that was obedient against all temptation onto death. Now we can be placed in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. This is a wonderful message that we can know a relationship of being reconciled with God and not only that, when we face trials like Israel, when they look on him whom they have pierced in the near future, they will see God face to face. Like Jacob saw God face to face. They will be feeling and searching their hearts like David, feeling condemned. Where, where were we wrong? Why did everything go wrong? But God will reveal that he is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This is going to happen soon. And in our own walk, the Lord is wanting us as believers to know such a relationship with him that it never becomes familiar. The atoning work of Christ never becomes familiar. It says in the word of God that as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we are to walk in him. There is coming a time another Passover, when God's judgment is going to come upon this world. And right now he's calling the body of Christ to not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting local assemblies. We are. He wants a new order in the body of Christ. We must change our ways. We must begin to make our house a house of prayer and a house of holiness. Now, I have a book written on the internet that you can purchase called God Headship and Body Invasion, which goes into all of this. It's about 252 pages, um, large six by eight, six by nine, pardon me, paperback, uh, as well as on Kindle, as well as the other book, Afterlife Incredible, Irrefutable, is also six by nine, 368 pages. But you can purchase those books. But they go into everything that we need to do in these last days to form the fullness of God's habitation so that we are ready for this time, for this great Passover that will happen in the last days. It warns the church in the book of Revelation towards the end of the reign of the Antichrist. And it says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he found naked, be found naked, and they see his shame. We are... The ones that should be preparing to be not like the Laodicean church that had filthy garments and was buying into false teachings. And he counsels them to buy of him gold tried in fire and white raiment that they may be clothed, that the shame of their nakedness would not appear. May we be those that do not turn people away from God in the last days because they don't see the reality of God in our assemblies because we become religious freaks or whatever. Maybe with those that have such a real and awesome relationship with God, that the glory of God shines from our assemblies across the land and conquers our nation at this urgent hour on the verge of our complete demise. And I don't need to go into all of that on a YouTube video because of the problems with cancel culture. So God bless you all and thank you for listening to this message. And remember, he wants you to let go of all the things that would hold you back and to cleave unto him and seek his blessing in your life and, and, you, and, his, and the revelation of himself 
to you in your life. God bless you all.